Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Earlier this week, there's a kind of strange victory party for the runner up in Michigan's Democratic primary. It was strange because it was not celebrating a person. The runner-up in this election was uncommitted, a protest vote. And the thing the uncommitted voters here have been protesting is Joe Biden's handling of the war in Gaza. This is the only way we can raise a flag to Democrats that you are going to lose unless you call for an ultimate ceasefire. The results are now in for the Michigan primary races, and they may offer some new clues about the general election in November. It was- Biden won about 81% of the vote, but over 100,000 voters, or more than 13%, cast their ballots for uncommitted. Recently- I've been wondering what to make of this sudden blip in the primary calendar. On the one hand, President Biden pulled off a comfortable victory in Michigan. On the other, 100,000 plus people showed up to vote for a candidate who was not a candidate at all. And Michigan is a state where no presidential hopeful has much margin for error. So I called up David Ferris to talk about all this. He writes for Slate, teaches political science. When did you first hear about the campaign to get Michigan Democrats to vote uncommitted this week? I heard about it a couple of weeks ago, um, and uh, I could initially, of course, a little bit skeptical of uh, of organizing people to vote for nothing, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it it certainly um, grew in prominence and significance, particularly in kind of like circles of political discourse, and it is it has become part of a a narrative about President Biden and his relative weakness heading into the general election, and his difficulties with managing the Democratic coalition as we head into what might be the first presidential rematch since 1956. David says, think of this week's result as an early warning. And not just about Gaza, but who Gaza is important to. I think the wider warning light all along since October and November has been uh, Biden standing with young people. Um, Young people provide extraordinary margins for Democratic candidates this century. Um, you know, President Biden won them by, you know, 30, 35 points, depending on the exit poll you're looking at in 2020. And if you just sort of like tinker around with the coalition numbers um, in a spreadsheet and decrease the president's numbers with young people, it is like uh, it is a, like a very, very shocking swing in the overall margin for his uh, for his reelection bid. And young people and young Democrats in particular tend to depart from the party line about Israel in general. And so that's not just a Michigan problem. Rather, that's not just an Arab-American problem. Um, that's a national problem that the, that the president needs to address to try to shore up that part of his coalition um, heading into the election. You know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of focus on what this protest vote in Michigan means for Biden and his candidacy. But I wonder a little bit if the last week's results both in Michigan and South Carolina, 
have warning signs for both presumed presidential candidates, like Trump, too. I think they do, right? I mean, I, I think that this is borne out in the national polling, um, where both candidates are kind of stuck in the in the low to mid-40s, um, which is kind of extraordinary given that they both have, like, 100% name ID, they've both been president. <laughs> um, and so both, uh, both President Biden and, and former President Trump, I think, can't be feeling great <laughs> about their standing heading into the into the general election. Today on the show, why victory in November is not going to be easy for Democrats or Republicans. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One of the things that was notable to me is how quickly the uncommitted coalition came together. Like on Tuesday night, a Michigan state representative told reporters, like, we did this in three weeks, essentially. What does that speed tell you about what's happening in this election? Sure. I mean, the speed tells you a few things, right? I mean, it's uh, just in the in the kind of social media era, it's, it's just easier um, to do a large-scale organizing campaign in which the ask is just like, show up and do this one thing <laughs> on this one day. It's a light lift. Yeah, it's a really light lift, you know. Um, and it's, a, it's an especially light lift because you weren't really even asking people to like defeat Joe Biden, <laughs> right? It was like you were asking people to send Joe Biden a message. And I think the speed at which it came together is a signal that the dissatisfaction with Biden's Gaza policies is is pretty widespread and able to be tapped into very easily by people who want to see a policy shift, right? And so if I'm the Biden camp, I'm thinking like, well, what are the, um, what are people who are critical of the Gaza policy? What what are they going to get up to next, right? Like, what are they going to do? Like, what what might happen in Chicago at the convention? I think that there are worries here for the Biden camp beyond the raw vote totals, sort of bleeding into more like what are sort of some high profile embarrassments or humiliations that the president might experience when he should be kind of coasting to uh, to renomination. Yeah. You said one of the major issues when it comes to this uncommitted vote is the fact that young people seem to be more eager to send Joe Biden a message that they disapproved of what was happening in Gaza. And, you know, that you can really look at the numbers and see, like Ann Arbor, that where University of Michigan is, 19% of the vote went uncommitted. Do you see Joe Biden and his campaign trying to address this gap with young people? I do. I mean, I think that this latest round of student loan forgiveness was was certainly motivated by a recognition that the president's polling numbers with young people are not that great. Yeah, it seemed really cynical to me when I saw it announced last week. <laughs> like, I got the push notification and I was like, oof, we're really trying to rein in these young voters, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it it was cynical, right? I mean, sometimes politics has to be a little bit cynical if you want to win. Um, 
I'm I'm concerned though that uh, the president and his team are are looking at the data and, and drawing the wrong conclusions from um, from these youth numbers. Like I don't actually think that the the sort of cynicism and, and lack of engagement among younger voters is about student loans, <laughs> right? I think it's prior to Gaza, it was a it was a broader narrative about like you know the Biden administration didn't get as much done as they wanted them to, and with the Gaza war, you had a, a very concrete uh, policy event where the president is misaligned with the with the youth wing, wing of his own party. But that's useful. That's like something you can take action on, like very concrete. It's not just like a word cloud of dissatisfaction. Right. right. I, I think it was a word cloud of dissatisfaction before Gaza. And, but now the president, in my mind, it's a relatively easy lift, right? Like I think that what young people want to see is not like a New York Times story with a bunch of people on background <laughs> talking about how upset they are. They want to see concrete action from the administration, right? They want to see rhetoric that very clearly places the onus on Israel to protect the civilian population of Gaza. I think they want Biden to come out in favor of a ceasefire. Um, A lot of polling suggests that a ceasefire has a majority with American Jews, right? So it's like, I don't see a ton of downside here for the president to be more openly critical of Israeli policy and conduct and to try to use that rhetoric as a way to get these wavering young people back on board and back in his camp because he really truly does need them to win in November. Let's shift to talking about Trump, because I've seen a bunch of pieces basically arguing that primary results in Michigan and South Carolina weren't all that great for Trump, even though he won both of the states handily. So can you explain that? Sure. Um, I want to point out that what Trump is doing just by running is unprecedented in the sort of like binding primary era that began in 1972. Okay. There've only been a few presidents who were defeated in this in this era, right? Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, and Trump. And Trump is the only one to run again. And so the two ways of looking at it are, again, like Trump is basically an incumbent, right? And incumbents tend to to get, you know, 80, 90% of the votes in these primaries because they're not really contested. Or this is a regular primary cycle and Trump's numbers would actually be um, incredible <laughs> in comparison to so, some of the more recent primary races, like in 2016 or 2012 or even 2008. So if it was a real primary, he's doing great. If he's running as an incumbent, not so much. Exactly. <laughs> and there's no way to to like settle that a priori, right? Like there's no way to look at this and be like, oh, I know exactly what this is because no president in this era who lost his reelection bid has come back to try to claim the nomination again. Um, and so he's in, you know, he's in uncharted territory, but I think, um, you know, given his role as party leader, you know, given the fact that his forces control the RNC, given the fact that I think he's pretty clearly seen, um, as a, as the Republican standard bearer, I, I lean a little bit more towards the, like, he should be doing better than this as, as a de facto incumbent and as someone who's polling so well nationally. Here's how well the former president is polling. In an average of hundreds of polls, Trump leads Biden by 2.2 points nationally. But then, Biden won South Carolina by 96 points, and Trump won by only 60. So you see what David's saying about how, for a former incumbent, that's not exactly a blowout? Whatever you want to say in public, privately, um, I, wouldn't look the, I wouldn't look at this as a normal open primary in which he's killing it. I, I would think more of like, he really has some work to do to shore up the more moderate wing of his coalition. And, and he doesn't, you know, honestly seem super well suited to that temperamentally, 
to put it lightly. Um, and so I don't know where that change is going to come from. Like Biden, you can you can imagine him uh, making that pivot. Trump, just just by virtue of who he is, he's not traditionally been able to maintain a kind of a, a discipline that's enforced on him by other other people in his orbit. Like he can he can make that change for a few days, but then he's kind of back to. Um, that sort of like uh, outrage production machine that, that he is in public all the time. Okay, so what you're telling me is that we've got a couple of candidates here, the presumed nominees, who both of them are looking weak going into a general election and Super Tuesday? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's an irony here, right, which is that um, in the United States, we we pick our party leaders. Like, we get the chance to vote for them. And what Democratic and, and Republican primary voters appear to be doing right now is choosing two nominees are, who are repellent to, like, wide swaths of the electorate. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a winning strategy. I don't love it. I don't love it. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that they are, I think they are two relatively weak general election candidates who have larger than usual problems managing their own coalitions. But uh, I think it's worth pointing out that even in a, like a quote-unquote normal primary year, you will have supporters of the losing primary candidates tell pollsters that they will never, ever come around to voting for the eventual nominee. Um, like, this is where we got the phrase Puma in 2008, right? Um, party unity, my ass, <laughs> which was what um, the, the Clinton side was uh, was doing. Not, not Clinton herself, right? But, like, the activists who were backing her bid were, like, bitter about the loss, and large numbers of them were saying they wouldn't vote for Obama in the fall. Um, and time and again, those voters tend to come around in, in, in pretty pretty high numbers, you know, 80, 85, 90 percent of them. But uh, again, because we're in such uncharted territory in terms of the basic dynamics of this race, I'm less confident about that than I than I would have been, you know, eight or 12 years ago. We'll be right back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Can we talk about how fixable the presidential race is at this point? Like if both of the candidates who are the presumptive nominees seem less popular than they should be, that seems bad. That said, the way I see it is that Biden, he does seem to have a real problem with young voters and with the war in Gaza. There are a lot of open questions about stuff like his age. But Trump is staring down a raft of indictments. And if I look at this problem clinically, it looks to me like Joe Biden's problems are more fixable or more controllable than Trump's. 
And I say that because Biden can change course when it comes to his policy in Israel. But Donald Trump can't control what happens when he walks into a courtroom. I think that's right. I think Donald Trump also seemingly can't really control what comes out of his mouth at any moment, right? So it's like you have somebody who's uh, who's really a loose cannon in terms of the public appearances. And you're right, he, he can't make these things go away. Um, and there's a lot of available polling that suggests some voters wouldn't vote for him if he was convicted of a felony. And so we don't have any idea how that's going to play out. It's a huge wild card in this election. And there's nothing he can do about it, right? I mean, he's done all the work he could ever do um, convincing the Republican primary electorate that this is all a hoax or a witch hunt or, you know, politically motivated prosecutions. Um, there's no way that he can make that message any louder than it already is. And uh, we, we would just have to see if he is convicted of a felony. <laughs> Again, we're in uncharted territory, I just want to point out, right? But like, will his voters come around for him in that case? I'd be pretty dubious that he'd be able to produce the same numbers in the fall um, as a traditional normal candidate. And Joe Biden has the ability to pivot not just on Gaza, but on all kinds of issues where the public is dissatisfied with his performance, right? When he also happens to be president, so he can actually do things, maybe? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has the ability to to use the bully pulpit to, to go out in public and make a forceful case for his policies. You know, voters keep telling pollsters that immigration is a really significant problem for him. Um, you know, he has pretty wide latitude in comparison to other issue areas um, to make changes to his border policies. He also has this, like, uh, Republicans just teed up this win for him when Democrats conceded just huge amounts of territory in this debate to sign on to a border compromise that House Republicans wouldn't even consider and that Senate Republicans ultimately turned against. So he can go out and say, like, look, man, I tried to fix the border. <laughs> right? We had a bill. We made concessions. We, we gave ground to the other side and they just weren't there. But uh, a lot of people vote emotionally. The people that we're most depending on here to change their minds are the, one that, the, the, are the ones that pay the least attention to politics generally um, and, and, and often start to tune into these things in the summer. And so it's, it's hard for me to sit here and say that like Biden can, can affect a three or four point change in his polls with a, with a dramatic policy shift. Um, I, think he's, I think he needs to do it, but I don't think that it's a silver bullet either. Yeah. I mean, but you remain concerned. I mean, you've <laughs> you've looked at Joe Biden's head to head polling numbers and they make you worried. Like you've noted he led just five of the last 30 head to head polls with Trump. And I know that there are people out there, maybe me, too, who push back on the notion that polls this early in the race are reliable. Why do they worry you anyway? The objective reality facing President Biden now in terms of the polling universe is really bad. You know, you have his approval rating stuck in the low 40s, upper 30s, depending on the poll. Um, that is historically low for an incumbent facing re-election. You also have these head-to-head -head polls in which he's doing really badly. You also have the, the four or five-way polls that include uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and his uh, his weird campaign and uh, Cornell West and, and some of the other third-party candidates. And Biden has trailed... I think 18 of the last 20 polls um, with a five-way race. And so um, that's very concerning. It's, it's concerning in a vacuum. It's also concerning that it hasn't gotten any better as like time has marched on and Donald Trump has, has uh, tightened his grip on the nomination. As it becomes clear that Trump is the nominee, are we seeing that bounce of people being like, oh, whew, then I better come home to Biden? No, not at all. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're not seeing that. And that's what really makes me like especially nervous, right? Is like I would expect if that were the case that we'd be seeing it by now. If anything, it's gotten a little bit worse over the last couple of months.
This is where David goes to a kind of dark place, a place where he wonders if maybe Biden's candidacy is so risky that Democrats should start thinking about changing course in a bigger way. David's the kind of guy who's skeptical of the argument you might have heard that polls this far out in a presidential year don't really mean much. He worries assumptions like that are making Democrats complacent. There are plausible theories about how this could turn around for Biden. There's a lot of political science research that shows third-party candidates tend to do much worse on Election Day than they are polling. Um, so what you see for third-party candidates in particular is that their their vote share in polls kind of declines a little bit as the election gets closer and then drops off dramatically on Election Day because people vote strategically. And so that, that combination, like the third-party vote will drop off, um, people will come around once it looks like um, Trump will gain the nomination, and well, polls aren't this predictive this far out, I think has contributed to less panic on the Democratic side than I personally think is warranted. Like, I think there should be more panic <laughs> uh, because panic might get people to work harder. Well, what should they do with that panic? I mean, like you've seen in the last couple of weeks, wild ideas floated like Biden drops out and we take it to the convention floor. And, you know, that's how we move forward. And a lot of fighting about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Are you that radical or are you just more thinking Democrats need to see this so they can change course with their policy and address what the voters are telling them they want addressed? I'm more in the radical camp here. That's fun. <laughs> Fundamentally, what we really need is like a time machine um, <laughs> to go to, to go back and, and like talk Joe Biden out of running again. But we can't do that, right? We are stuck with the with the reality that he not only he chose to run, but he cleared the field and no one credible ran against him, right? So if you don't want Joe Biden to be the nominee at this point, you are stuck with a series of like untested and relatively unpalatable options, all of which really require him to have a come to Jesus moment and step aside. I know you put a lot of faith in the polling and what it tells you about what might be to come. But I wanted to talk to you about the analysis of this Democratic strategist named Michael Podhorzer. Because I think he's said something which is kind of interesting to me, that if you look at the polling about approval of the candidates in particular, it seems clear that globally, voters are just kind of dissatisfied with the status quo. Like if you're a candidate who's been in office for a while, they sort of don't like you. <laughs> and that means that when you look at the polling numbers, what you're seeing may be a bit of an illusion. Like what you're seeing may be dissatisfaction with government as it stands versus a true representation of what this candidate means going head to head with another candidate. What do you make of that analysis? Look, I mean, on the one hand, I think there's something to it. I mean, I think there's been something to this argument throughout the sort of post-COVID era where, you know, the whole electorate experienced this terrible trauma um, and like the worst year of their lives. <laughs> and a few things still seem a little bit off. You know, it was like supply chain issues. It was inflation. It was crime, right? It was like a series of social issues stemming from the pandemic that I think have, have made people restless, you know, dissatisfied with the status quo. What I would say about this argument is that if what's going on with the electorate is they're, that they're annoyed with the status quo, I, I don't necessarily want to be the incumbent in that scenario, hmm. right? For whatever it's worth, Joe Biden is the president. You know, 
Um, I'm a, I'm a Democrat. I think that Joe Biden generally has a pretty strong record as president, right? But it doesn't seem to be breaking through to voters in the way that you would hope. And so, you know, again, you can, you can make these arguments in a vacuum that are like, I think people will ultimately come around. I think the undecideds will look at their choices and say like, man, I don't really like how things are going, but I certainly don't want to hand the reins back to Trump. I just don't see it. And I don't see any indication in the data that Biden will win those voters decisively. I have hopes that he will, right? But I don't have any confidence that it's going to happen. David, you are sweating. (laughs) I really am, yeah. (laughs) David Ferris, I'm super grateful for your time and for coming on the show. Thanks for doing it. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time, uh, despite the subject matter. (laughs) David Ferris is a politics professor at Roosevelt University. He's also a contributing writer for Slate. And that is our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Catch you back here next time.